If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia, and dedicated to the proposition first articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the necessary shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, a counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor, and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. And I am joined, as always, by my partner in crime in all things strategery, Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at the School of Advanced International Studies of Johns Hopkins University here in Washington, D.C., as well as the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Elliot, happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. Well, uh, same, uh, same to you. I've been having a, I've been having really a great time uh, until the, this this horrible thing happened to me, Eric. I had this experience where for hours, it, I mean, just imagine what it would be like to spend hours with having a couple of brilliant journalists describing in excruciating detail your worst moments in the dentist chair. That that's what I've been going through for the last day or so, and uh, I think with that, you better. Welcome our two guests. Well, our two guests are Peter Baker and Susan Glasser, uh, I think perhaps Washington's most accomplished journalistic couple. They have been correspondents uh, respectively together for the Washington Post. Peter is now the White House correspondent of the New York Times, and Susan writes the uh, weekly uh, letter from Biden's Washington for the New Yorker magazine. Peter has written The Breach, an excellent book about the Clinton impeachment. Uh, he also wrote Days of Fire, which as a former regime element in uh, the Bush 43 administration, I'm happy to say was, I think, the very first fair-minded book about, about that administration. Uh, and together they have written Kremlin Rising, uh, as well as a terrific biography of Secretary of State James A. Baker. And they are uh, here today with us to talk about their most recent book, The Divider, about the Trump presidency. Welcome, Susan and Peter. Thank you so much for having us. It's really great to be with both of you. Glad to be with you. I have to confess that, like Elliot, I did have a feeling as I read the book that I was being subjected to the the dentist drill. It sort of reminded me of that scene in Marathon Man where, where Dustin Hoffman is getting the drill put into his teeth and being asked, is it safe to come out? It is a tremendous book. It is a real accomplishment, I think, because it brings together so much of what happened during the Trump presidency. I think that the Trump presidency, you know, came at us so fast. There were just so many events, so many scandals, so many presidential tweets uh, that, you know, it it is hard to remember all the distinct elements of the presidency. And like a pointillist painting, you guys put all of those dots together 
in an incredibly compelling picture, and it's extraordinarily well written as well. So, you know, I would like to start by focusing on the dysfunction of the Trump administration's national security decision making. You guys have covered a lot of presidencies. You've written about the Bush 41 presidency, which in some sense was one of the most harmonious presidencies. But I, you know, look, I remember, old enough to remember, Bob Gates saying during Bush 43 that, you know, most of the presidents he served, the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, or the National Security Advisor were not on speaking terms. And he relished being part of Bush 43, where Steve Hadley, Condi Rice, and he all had a very convivial relationship. Now they're actually in business together. This was something very different. I mean, how different was it in your experience? And what do you make of that? Well, thank you, first of all, uh, for the kind words, Eric, about uh, maybe a, a challenging subject. Uh, we certainly didn't mean to ruin uh, anybody's uh, Christmas uh, vacation with visions of Trump dancing in their heads. But look, uh, you know, I, I'm so glad to be able to be with you today, in particular to focus on uh, the dysfunction by design, I would say, of the national security team uh, in the four years of the Trump presidency, because I think it's one of the most revealing kind of through lines of the presidency. It's a really interesting way to track uh, the overall chaos of, of the Trump years in the White House. And you're right, you know, it's not the first White House to be racked by infighting uh, and discord uh, in the administration, but these folks weren't fighting with each other mostly about policy. They had a common enemy in some ways. Uh, it was Donald Trump himself, the president uh, for many of these national security officials, and yet they did not have a common approach to fighting the common enemy. And Trump, of course, is a master of dividing and conquering and using uh, the infighting of those around him as a way of maintaining his power. It's how he ran the Trump organization, his business, and it's definitely how he ran his White House. I have a question about that. Is that because he's so brilliant at turning people against each other uh, and using that as, as a way of governing? Or is it the fact that you know, if you say if you look at the people, three people were at the apex of the national security team to begin with, H.R. McMaster, Jim Mattis, Rex Tillerson, each with undeniable strengths. You know, I know two of them reasonably well, but one has to say these are not people that you would normally have imagined in these positions. I mean, that just, you know, I think it was it was, came as a surprise to each of them that they were selected. I don't know if, if you would share that view, Eric. I mean, how much of the dysfunction... I guess there's, and this is a broader question about the book too. How much of the dysfunction is because of Trump, and how much of the dysfunction is because of the people who were willing to work for Trump and who were kind of plucked, you know, from whatever it was that they were doing to enter a White House for which they were singularly unprepared? I think that's a good question. Look, some of that would have happened under a different president had you had these characters in there, right? Because they are strong-willed, because they have their own points of view, because they were not necessarily team players in, in the same way that others might have been, regardless of Trump, right? So when Jim Mattis and H.R. McMaster are kind of going at it with each other, it's against the backdrop of uh, an, you know, an Army three-star and a Marine four-star. And you can't you know, you can't separate that, right? There are these scenes in the book 
where, you know, McMaster clearly felt dissed by Mattis because he was a three-star, a lieutenant general rather than a four-star, didn't come from the same Marine culture. At one point, Mattis says to him, well, that's the way a three-star would think. So some of that would have happened under any circumstance. But Trump, obviously, I do think brilliant is one word. I'm not sure the brilliant is quite the right word, but I think instinctively does stir the pot. He likes to, uh, to, to divide people because he, he finds that that's the one way he keeps on top, right? So had it been even a more cohesive team coming in, he still would have found ways to pit them against each other, I think. Um, and, and it's just, it's, it's the way he operates. He's, you know, somebody comes up to him and say, and he says, well, who do you report to? He says, well, I report to the chief of staff. No, you don't. You report to me now. So he's constantly breaking any sense of organization, discipline, it automatically therefore sets up his people to be uh, jealous of each other, to be rivals, to be uncertain about their status with him and uncertain with their status with each other. Is this cleverness or cunning on his part, or is it just, you know, this kind of brutish way of behaving? I mean, in, in other <laughs> words, well, you know, I guess what I'm trying to get at, and, and it's something that I've puzzled about with Trump for quite some time, is does he have some very narrow forms of genius? I mean, across the board, I mean, he's ignorant, he's awful, he's I mean, he's depraved. You know, Eric and I are two of the original never Trumpers. So you'll never hear us say a nice word about the guy. But I, I do wonder whether he has certain gifts that we should think about. Well, I mean, if, if a gift for uh, fomenting discord and division in those who surround him, you know, do you call that a gift? I don't know if that's a, you know, that's generally not a positive. And in fact, his, his, his advisors were singularly ineffective. Uh, and you actually, Elliot, I think put your finger on one of the reasons why is that uh, Trump uh, had a tendency to appoint uh, people who were notably unqualified for the positions which they attained. And that was part of how he hooked people into him. And, and again, this is an, a, a, a modus operandi you see with Trump throughout his career. So he would uh, tells and brags a story uh, when he was in business of literally taking like the security guard and turning him into one of his company vice presidents. And uh, there are many, many examples in the Trump administration in the White House where he had almost a similar approach. And of course, that engenders a certain um I don't know if you want to call it loyalty to him, but there are many people, there are many ambitious people in Washington uh, who decided to serve Trump, even if they didn't agree with him, knowing that they might never have a chance uh, uh, to be the secretary of state or the director of the CIA, like Mike Pompeo, uh, you know, in a different administration. And there are many, many examples of that. So part of it is, I think it's not because he was calculating in in some kind of Machiavellian sense. And I think that's often a mistake uh, that uh, critics would make, uh, as well as admirers, is sort of puffing up this idea of Trump. He's not a strategist. Uh, arguably, he at times isn't even very tactical, but he, he has a, a well-honed sense of uh, self-preservation and what he's looking for. Uh, I used to describe it, and I think it particularly applies to some of these national security type positions, is that he... It's like the island of misfit toys. You know, there's something broken about all of them. Sometimes it might not be obvious. You know, maybe it's just their incredible ambition uh, that's suppressed, uh, you know, or their weakness, uh, you know, their their lack of attachment to the Constitution, uh, you know, their, their tendency to want to uh, fight for turf and power, their willingness uh, to prefer the limelight 
over any kind of set of principles. I mean, you know, name your poison, right? Each, each of these folks is different. But Trump had a knack, uh, I think, for assembling uh, this because what's the through line? He he cycled through an extraordinary number of people. This was the highest turnover we ever had in the senior levels uh, in such a short period of time. And yet the through line was consistent of infighting, chaos, discord, and division. And I think the through line was was Trump himself. The Italians actually, I think, have a word for this, uh, which is furbo, which it, it's, it means animal cunning. It, it doesn't really connote you know, a kind of intelligence, but it really represents a, a sort of preternatural sense for people's weaknesses and how they can be manipulated to you know, his own benefit. You make quite a point throughout the book of Trump's will to power and the fact that he had bent his whole life, everything around him and everybody around him to his will and succeeded. And I know from my own experience in government, you know, when you get to people in the White House or senior leadership positions, they tend to recur to what they think got them there. I mean, in other words, they become, you know, a more extreme version of themselves, if you will, you know, than they were ahead of time. I, you know, one of the things that happened a lot during the Trump years, and Elliot, I suspect, had the same experience, was people inside would tell you, no matter how bad it looks outside, it's really worse on the inside. I'm sure you had many of your own sources telling you that as well. You have a really arresting anecdote in the book about this, which is Margaret Peterlin, who was Rex Tillerson's uh, chief of staff. She and our former colleague and former friend, Brian Hook, who was in the John Hay initiative with us, they were the only ones who went to any of the NSC meetings for state under the reign of uh, Secretary Tillerson. And you quote Margaret as saying, we didn't want anyone in the State Department to see how bad uh, the process really was, how, you know, how decisions were really being made. I mean, that's really kind of extraordinary. But, but do, you, do you believe that? I guess the thing that I continue to think about is, you know, to what extent were the, the professionals who did go in, to what extent were they kidding themselves that they could do some good? To what extent was it their ambition that got, had gotten a hold of them? To what extent was it, you know, the seduction of power? You know, to what extent was it they just got, kind of got trapped into circumstances? And and I have to say, and maybe, you know, I'm less charitable than uh, my friend Eric over there. I, I think a lot of this was almost willful self-deception and craving for power and, you know, principles kind of falling by the wayside, or is that, am I being, I'm probably being too harsh to some individuals, but. Well, Ellie, you were the canary in the coal mine on this from the very beginning, right? Your experience in that transition was the wake up call for a lot of people. Do you go in or not? Right. As having been an ever Trumper, the question then becomes, do you owe it to your country to give it a shot to try to help, to try to make it a better administration. And quickly you came to the conclusion, no, don't run, run away screaming. And I think something that you said, something to that effect, uh, advising your fellow Republicans. And I think that that really is one of the through lines through the book as well. As Susan rightly says, that Trump, obviously all, all roads lead to Trump. But one of the real interesting themes of the book for us was, was all of these people who, who, who came to that same, you know, choice, in the road that you're talking about at what point, you know, what mix of patriotism, public service, ambition, vanity, uh, the notion that you'll never get the job like this again, hunger for power, the desire to achieve ideological goal because you can manipulate this guy who doesn't know anything. All of those things, you know, play out. I think different people are different 
parts of that spectrum, perhaps. And they all fool themselves to some extent by saying, if I go in, I can make it better. Or if I stay, I can make it better. My successor will be worse. Whoever he picks to take my place will let him get away with stuff that otherwise he might not get away with. And I think we went into this book looking at that pretty skeptically and pretty cynically. At the same time, the other thing I think we also found was there are times when you can say it made a difference that some of these people were there as opposed to the people who succeeded them. And the one example I come up with is January 6th, right? John Kelly, whatever his flaws, and he of course had many, many people would criticize him, would have thrown himself in front of the door of the Oval Office rather than let Mike Flynn and Sidney Powell and all these crazy people come into the Oval Office and talk about martial law and seizing voting machines, whereas Mark Meadows seemed to be an enabler, telling Ginny Thomas, yes, this is a fight for the Lord. We ought to be uh, doing this kind of thing. So you can't, I mean, I, there is clearly evidence that having people in did make a difference, even if at times they were fooling themselves as to how much of a difference. Could I just ask a, a follow-up on that? Uh, and I'm not asking you to burn your sources, which uh, being the outstanding journalist you are, you wouldn't do. But but as you talk to these people after you know the dust has settled, to what extent do they feel remorse? Do they feel that they kind of violated their better natures? Or did they say, no, I was completely right, and I actually saved the country, and nobody really appreciates me, particularly those awful never-Trumpers who are just you know, throwing spitballs from the sidelines? You know, it's a very important question, actually, Elliot. And I think that, uh, you know, there were just as there were sort of distinct phases to the presidency, right, you know, because he had so many different uh, uh, advisors that he cycled through, there are different approaches to this issue. Generally speaking, uh, this is not a remorseful or self-reflective group, I have to say. Uh, and certainly some of them have turned more publicly against Trump than others. You know, John Bolton is on any airwave that will have him trashing Trump. Uh, Bill Barr, to a certain extent, has has chosen that course as well. Uh, others to this day haven't really spoken out. John Kelly has uh, uh, participated to a certain extent publicly in confirming, uh, you know, his qualms about Trump or individual particularly outrageous incidents, uh, but has seemed to not want to become kind of the public face uh, uh, or perhaps a lightning rod of criticism. Um, I've been struck by, generally speaking, the lack of um, uh, willingness to take responsibility by many of these folks. And at one of, I don't know about you, but I, I find it particularly one of my pet peeves, in fact, uh, is about the group of people who emerged at the very end, uh, it, arguably in crucial roles, right, of uh, seeking to constrain Trump in 2020 and especially uh, in the aftermath of the election, uh, people like Barr, even people like Mike Pompeo, who's never publicly essentially really uh, admitted the role that he played in trying to constrain Trump. And yet what I find really infuriating, and, and, and Bolton does this too, to a certain extent, is this idea that, well, he really went crazy, you know, after I was there. Or, you know, can you believe that Donald Trump was, you know, like trying to attack the uh, uh, constitutional basis of uh, how we settle elections, says Bill Barr. Uh, well, where was Bill Barr for the months before the election in which Donald Trump was attacking the legitimacy of the election? This this idea that, you know, he somehow snapped and went nuts on November 3rd, 
2020 when he lost the election, when in fact he'd literally been telling the American public for months, well, if I don't win, uh, then I'm going to not accept the results, right? So he actually did exactly what he would say he would do. So that's a particular pet peeve of mine. And certainly uh, the folks on the national security and foreign policy side are just as uh, guilty as, as any of the other uh, folks in is somehow pretending that it was only the moment when they got off the Trump train that things went to hell. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, that's one particular issue. But, but to your point, I would say that I started out the book project uh, having a very, you know, a stronger view than I did when I finished it. Uh, uh, about the ill-advisability of them serving in the Trump White House, because I do think that the record is pretty clear uh, that uh, the constraints, the buying for time, the hemming and hawing, the not really uh, executing on his orders, or, you know, there were some advisors in the White House, such as uh, Rob Porter, the uh, uh, disgraced um, uh, but nonetheless kind of crucial staff uh, secretary who they had the three time rule, right? That, you know, Trump literally would order, they'd have to order them to do something three times before they would have to make even at least a half-hearted effort to try to carry it out. Um, It is pretty clear to me, examining the full four years of the presidency, that all of that delay and obstruction made a difference and stopped some very bad things from happening. And I think that leads to the great forward-looking concern about what a second uh, Trump term in office would lead to as he himself became much more aware of the obstruction and became much more effective, I think, at uh, surrounding himself with kind of people who wouldn't put obstacles in his way, which is another explanation, of course, for the catastrophic ending of the presidency. So much of this, it seems to me, you know, particularly as you read your book, was so predictable. I mean, it was predictable, for instance, in fact, Elliot and I talked about it at the time, that having, uh, since Elliot and I both had done time in the Pentagon, that, you know, a three-star operating as national security advisor with a four-star secretary of defense and a four-star DHS and then later chief of staff that they would see him as a three star and that that it would be you know sort of snake bitten from the beginning and of course that as you document is what happened it was predictable that Mick Mulvaney as acting chief of staff would enable Trump in in extorting Ukraine because he didn't care about foreign policy the whole time he was in the congress i mean uh, as far as he was concerned the 050 the department of defense account was just another government budget account to be cut like all the others. It was perfectly predictable that Mark Meadows would throw gasoline on whatever fire he was near, uh, because that had been his whole record in the Congress of the United States. Was this a kind of chronicle of a tale foretold, I mean, in your view? Well, and, and, and step back for a second and look at Trump, right? All of this was predictable before he was elected in terms of what he would do. Now, I know a lot of people wanted to give him benefit of the doubt, especially once he was elected. They wanted to say, well, maybe he'll turn out to be kind of a coalition builder. He's a New Yorker. He doesn't really have an ideology. He used to be a Democrat. He used to be a reform party guy, whatever. All that's true to an extent. He could have actually tried to be that if he wanted to, but he didn't want to. And there was 70 years of history before he took office to look at, which was pretty clear 
before the election. You know, Susan likes to rightly point out that there were five really good full-length biographies of this guy documenting his history in business and in reality television long before he stepped onto the uh, election stage. And that we we knew that Susan gathered those five biographers in what she called a session of the Trumpologist when she was editor of Politico to talk through his characteristics, the traits that brought him to where he was. And all of them played out once he became president. In, in effect, it, you know, it's a cliche in Washington to say it was uh, uh, it was shocking, but not surprising. It should not have been surprising because all of these things he foreshadowed uh, in effect uh, in the years leading up to the presidency. So how did he get elected? <laughs> well, it's very interesting, Elliot. I mean, you know, that's outside the scope of uh, this work, which is which is a history of the, the four years in office. But, you know, having listened to a series of uh, really fascinating focus groups with with your colleague at the Bulwark, Sarah Longwell, uh, in, in the run up to the 2020 election. She spent really the whole four years from 2016 on, you know, trying intensively to understand that question of how did he get elected and what would uh, stop Republicans or Republican-leaning independents from voting for him again in 2020. That was her project. And I spent a fair amount of time with her in in 2019 and uh, then a bit later in 2020, uh, you know, trying to understand those voters in that demographic. And consistently, actually, part of what I heard was that these folks uh, didn't do their due diligence, that they believed in the TV uh, cartoon apprentice version of this outsider businessman who was going to come and clean up Washington. That, uh, as Sarah would often say, that came up in basically every single one of her focus groups. And they they didn't read the books and mm. they didn't uh, know the history of Donald Trump. And it was the people who had made a study of Donald Trump who had looked at the information that was, of course, easily out there and available to them. Uh, you know, anyone who had focused on who Trump was, uh, you know, he brought those same characteristics. And I always talked about this and thought of this as the, you know, the bad boyfriend theory of the pet presidency. You're not going to change a 70-year-old man, you know, uh, into being something different than what he always was. And what he always was was a divider and a charlatan and a con man and a grifter. Uh, and, uh, you know, so again, the surprise was perhaps that many voters, um, you know, that they did not take their their job seriously, uh, you know, to a certain extent, or they felt that Trump would be the kind of disruptor and outsider that they wanted, uh, you know, that they they knew perhaps of his personal characteristics. They certainly knew that he wasn't, uh, you know, a, a very honest guy. They didn't care. Uh, they thought that there were other things that were more important. And many of the people we write about in the book, by the way, including some of the national security officials, were uh, also of that view. They knew Trump's liabilities and they chose uh, to serve him or to work with him, just as many foreign leaders did, because they saw that they could get out of the Trump presidency what they wanted. And that's another important theme. I think just to reinforce that, I think some of them, I'm pretty sure, still feel that way. So I, you know, I haven't spoken, H.R. McMaster and I have not had a conversation in about five years. But I think if you were to ask him to compare Barack Obama, Trump, and Biden, uh, he Obama would clearly be, in his view, be the worst foreign policy president ever. And I bet you Biden second and Trump third. I mean, in other words, I think he, I, I think he would actually think that Trump is 
you know, all things considered, not as awful as you might think. Yeah, I mean, look, obviously, it depends on your point of view about foreign policy, right? I mean, there, ironically, in foreign policy, as we we're talking about that, there's actually more, in some ways, more coherence to Trump than there was on the domestic side, in the sense that, you know, he's not an ideological guy, he's not a guy with a philosophy per se, except that on foreign policy, he comes at it with this worldview, which is that the United States is being ripped off, right? Apply that theory to whatever, to security guarantees, alliances, trade, economics, what have you. And he applied that view to, to that. And it, there's a coherence to it that was appealing, obviously, to people, voters who cared about foreign policy. It's more of an isolationist uh, brand uh, side of the spectrum, obviously. It's, it's less of a sense of responsibility to the world, doesn't care about allies. Um, but it's not entirely incoherent. It's just, it's just maybe unproductive or counter, you know, counterproductive, right? Look at NATO, the, the great example. He wasn't the first guy who said NATO allies should pay more money or should pay more for their own defense. Obama said that. Bush said that. Gates made a big point of that. They just didn't see the. They just didn't see that as enough to destroy destroy the alliance, right? To to to, to pretend it was a protection racket and to and to and to trash people like Angela Merkel uh, and Emmanuel Macron, and Theresa May, in, in such harsh and personal ways. I mean, that's the difference, right? Is, is that Trump made it all personal? He he made it all about loyalty to him or not loyalty to, to, to him. But there are parts of his foreign policy that survive today. I mean, China is being a good example. They haven't taken the tariffs off. There's a bipartisan consensus right now about China. So Trump, in some ways, was the leading edge. He may not have handled it in the way that a lot of foreign policy professors would have preferred, but there were areas where an HR master could feel like they could get something done. John Bolton, last last quick point, John Bolton specifically, I think, came in with like a list of treaties he wanted to get out of that Trump couldn't have cared less about. And that Trump said, sure, let's go ahead and get out of the uh, the uh, the INR. Let's get out of, uh, you know, uh, uh, this, out of the other thing. Uh, um, uh, Open skies. Open skies. Exactly. There was like a postal treaty, I even mean, I think at one point, something uh, the, the, obviously intermediate uh, range nuclear treaty. And Trump was perfectly happy to go along with that. Bolton, to his extent, it's his way of thinking, got some things done that he wanted to get done that otherwise might not have happened under a, any other president. So, Eric, let me ask you then. Uh-huh. You know, okay. don't, don't they have a point? I mean, isn't you know Trump, you know, on say NATO, Trump is just your old boss Bob Gates with bad manners, and uh, <laughs> and, and you know, and he, he and he shook stuff loose, and he modernized the nuclear arsenal and the Abraham Accords, and added all up. You know, should should we cons- should we consider that? You know, maybe uh, what was Cromwell's word? Considering the bowels of Christ, that you may be wrong. You know, should that apply to us? No. Um, <laughs> short answer. But I mean, you know, look, even a broken clock is right twice a day. I mean, there, there were some, there were some things the administration got right. I think about foreign policy, but more often than not, that was uh, in spite, not because of, of Donald Trump. It was people inside the government, uh, as Peter and Susan are just saying, working their own agendas uh, or working on an agenda that was set by traditional conservative Republicans in the Congress or whatever. I mean, I think it was Tom Wright at Brookings, then of Brookings, now at the NSC staff, uh, who first, I think, correctly identified uh, the uh, antecedents of Trumpism uh, in Bob Taft uh, as a kind of Taftite isolationism. I think, Susan, you might have actually uh, edited that piece for Politico magazine uh, back when it came out in uh, 2016. I think Tom was really, you know, sort of onto something. I wanted to sort of take us in a slightly different direction. A a few minutes ago, Susan, you had a long list of uh, modifiers or adjectives describing Donald Trump very colorfully. 
one that was not in your list was authoritarian. And, you know, you and uh, Peter wrote one of the very earliest and best, still best books about Vladimir Putin called Kremlin Rising, written after or on the basis of the time you, the two of you spent together in the uh, Washington Post Moscow Bureau. Did that help prepare you in some way to understand the Trump presidency better than perhaps some of your other colleagues in the fourth estate? Well, you know, Eric, I I don't know about that, but I do re- recall so vividly actually going back to 2016, how it was the Russia hands, uh, you know, both journalists that we knew, people who had lived there, people in the government or, or outside of the government, but who had been in government, uh, you know, and understood the Soviet Union and Russia. They were the ones who I think were early, early on the alert here, not specifically because of the Russian interference in the 2016 election, but because it was so clear that Trump was an outlier, that he was an anomalous uh, and anti-democratic small d figure in American politics. And, you know, there were so many uncanny echoes, I think, for, for Peter and I. We happened to live in Moscow during the first few years of Vladimir Putin's rule, which was really the period of his systematic attacks on uh, the fragile, very fragile and very flawed uh, democratic institutions that had sprung up in the decade after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the dismantling of uh, those institutions, the rollback of democracy. Uh, and, uh, you know, for anyone who was in Russia then or in, in other countries like Hungary, like Turkey, there is a playbook. Uh, and the you know systematic going after the independent media, the demonization of the fake news and the enemies of the people, that's part of the checklist. The uh, outspoken admiration uh, for the world's autocrats, uh, dictators, and tyrants, while at the same time the consistent tearing down of allies and partners, uh, the personal extreme hyper-personalization of power. Whenever Donald Trump spoke about his, I have the absolute right, he would say. Uh, And we have a list in the book of, you know, it's a very long paragraph of all the things that Donald Trump claimed that he had the absolute right to do. Uh, Just the other day, uh, we were struck again. Uh, Putin uh, said something uh, in speaking to an audience in Moscow about uh, the war in Ukraine. Uh, And uh, this was before he actually even used the word war, which he's now used for his quote unquote special military operation. But Putin uh, was telling the audience, don't listen to anybody else. Don't trust anybody but me. And that was one of the things that Donald Trump said. And actually, he said it often in different versions to his followers. Don't trust your lying eyes. Only trust me. Uh, and again, it was it was these habits and instincts of an authoritarian. I actually wrote uh, an opinion piece that was the cover of the New York Times Sunday Review uh, only two weeks into Trump's presidency in 2017, in which I said, that's the Putin comparison that you should be worried about with Donald Trump. I have no idea whether he's a Kremlin asset or not. This was right at the beginning you know, of the investigation that would become the Mueller investigation. But I said, it's his instincts of authoritarianism that's the thing that we haven't seen before here in the U.S. in 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 the modern age, and and I also think, by the way, to your to this earlier discussion uh, that you know you three were having about the question of you know Trump's foreign policy record overall. That's the real outlier that we can say 
is Trump's true foreign policy because it came from him personally, uh, as opposed to what his staff did or didn't do. You know, they negotiated the Abraham Accords. They did, uh, you know, many of these other things. But it was Donald Trump who took the word of Vladimir Putin over that of America's intelligence agencies. It was Donald Trump who had a love affair with Kim Jong-un, <laughs> you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think the authoritarian uh, admiration is is one of the keys to the presidency. I would add, by the way, just, you know, just in, in, in following him around in the, for those four years, you just you saw it in his his demeanor, his attitude whenever he met with these guys. I was on Air Force One with him after he had dinner with Xi Jinping down in Buenos Aires in the sidelines of a summit there. And on the plane ride back, he's just waxing this, you know, sort of envious for how Xi Jinping didn't have to worry about a Congress or courts or the media, that if he wanted to put somebody on trial for, for fentanyl drug distribution, he could put him on trial today and execute him tomorrow. And he spoke of that as if that was a great thing. And so remember where he comes from, right? What is his experience? His experience is not in a governmental organization where you have to negotiate with other power centers or deal with other equities or figure out how to navigate a complicated system. His experience isn't even in a typical business with a public own company. There are no shareholders in the Trump organization. There's no board of directors. There's only Trump. And so he answered to himself, basically, and his lenders who <laughs> finally gave up on him for, for the vast part of his 70 years. So he comes into government, the only president in our history who doesn't have a single day in public office of the military, right? Never been part of something larger than himself. And so, of course, he looks at the Oval Office the way he did the 20-whatever floor of T Trump Tower when he was singularly in charge. Do you think he learned anything about foreign policy? I mean, I certainly take the point that he learned something about the levers of power in Washington and, you know, that the John Kellys of this world cannot actually be trusted to do exactly what you tell them to do because they have these weird ideas about the Constitution. But in, in strictly foreign policy terms, was there any evolution or is he down to this very day still the same chaos Muppet that he always was? <laughs> Donald Trump doesn't think in terms of foreign policy. Uh, you know, we went down, we interviewed him twice for this book in Mar-a-Lago, once in the spring of 2021 and then again in November of 2021. And, you know, we thought, well, he's going to be fulminating a lot about the rigged election and whatever. So we're going to try to put that part off and try to ask him about other stuff, including foreign policy. And it was very clear. We started trying to run through a list of questions like that, uh, questions uh, about Afghanistan and about uh, Russia and Putin. And it was very clear that those topics had never really come up uh, at all, <laughs> uh, you know, as far as we could tell, since he had left uh, the White House, he has no interest uh, in the world at large. His worldview, uh, in fact, not only is largely unchanged, but, you know, you can go back as as people, including we report in the book, uh, Angela Merkel did, <laughs> and you can read a Playboy interview that he gave uh, in uh, at the end of the Cold War uh, in um, uh, 1990. Uh, and you can discern basically a, a blueprint of Trump's thinking you know, and kind of worldview that uh, as long as you substitute the word China for the word Japan is is more or less largely undiminished uh, today. And I, I think that, you know, he, he is who he is as far as that goes. And look at the comments that Donald Trump made in February of this year at the beginning of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. He praised Putin as a quote unquote genius 
and said, uh, you know, that he was making a smart move. Uh, now, of course, uh, he tried to, you know, walk that back a bit, um, you know, once it was clear that it might not have been so smart. But he continu- he's continued to oppose uh, uh, the billions in military assistance that uh, a bipartisan majority in Congress has voted for m- multiple times. Um, and I-, I think that, you know, Trump not only hasn't changed his worldview, but it's kind of more undiluted now that he doesn't have any John Kelly's and John Bolton's around him. Uh, you know, he is who he is. In, in his office in Mar-a-Lago when we were there, by the way, uh, in addition to the classified documents sitting on his desk that we, that we noticed, <laughs> we, of course. We failed to notice. <laughs> but the only you two needed to get into the closet, Peter. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We should have gone through. Who knew? We didn't, uh, we, nobody mentioned that to us before we went. But we, the only pictures of anybody else other than himself and his family on the walls are him with Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth II and him with Kim Jong-un. In other words, royalty, which he loves, because royalty is for him, to him the ideal, and Kim Jong-un, who he, of course, as Susan said, had this love affair with, and on the floor, leaned against the wall, was a gift uh, from Bolsonaro of Brazil, a portrait of Trump made out of shell casings, bullet shell casings. That was the uh, the gift he had on his wall. So not, not a lot of Democrats, small D or, 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 you know, American heroes, if you will. So I want to turn to a subject you cover with some of the most arresting stories in the book, and not least because we have one of the world's leading experts on civil military relations, you know, sitting with us today. That is Trump's love affair gone bad with my generals, as you describe. And this is like really, to me, remarkable. I mean, first of all, the infatuation with Marshall, M-A-R-T-I-A-L, not, you know, M-A-R-S-H-A-L, symbols uh, that starts right from the inauguration day. I had never seen the story that you recount in which he instructs he wants his inauguration parade not to have any floats, but he wants helicopters and tanks and he wants it to look like North Korea, you know, sort of a rare moment of self-awareness, I guess. But then you have the, the, you tell the story really of the souring relationship with Mattis, with McMaster, with Kelly, uh, with the Pentagon generals. You have this incredible story about uh, uh, Paul Selva, the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who, when Trump sounds him out about the big military parade he wants to have on the 4th of July after having seen the Bastille Day parade in Paris, and, and Selva says, look, I grew up in Portugal, you know, which was a dictatorship, and they had lots of parades like that. We don't do that in the United States of America. So Trump says, oh, so you don't like the idea? <laughs> it's like, I mean, <laughs> t- tell us a little bit. Of, I mean, this seems to be a moment, that, and you also have some terrific stuff about the difficulties Mark Milley had, uh, you know, uh, managing, dealing with Trump right up until the end. This seems to have been a real test of civil military relations. Uh, how do you think the, you know, the military did in this instance? And how did the civilian masters in the Pentagon, you know, Mattis, Shanahan, Esper, how did they do in your view? Well, I, again, we're, we're talking with the experts here. So I, I await the verdict, uh, you know, that you will issue. I think that I'm glad that you spotlighted this because for Peter and I, it was some of the most extraordinary reporting that we have done in, you know, several decades 
of reporting in Washington. Uh, you know, there's just no question that is sobering and alarming uh, to find when we receive, you know, uh, the draft uh, uh, of Mark Milley's resignation letter. Um, uh, you know, at the time it was people were aware of the, you know, kind of rift that had opened up between Milley and, and Trump over, you know, the kind of explosive ending of the presidency, but not really. And for me, you know, getting, uh, obtaining uh, that draft and, and, and looking at the language in it was something that I think was one of the most amazing, you know, pieces of reporting that, that I've done, uh, you know, in that letter, which Millie decided ultimately not to send, concluding that it was, um, you know, we don't have a tradition of resignation in protest, uh, you know, by uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs for, for some important reasons, and that he would stay and sort of essentially fight Trump from the inside. But, you know, in that letter, he says things like, uh, you know, that Trump was doing, quote, grave and irreparable harm to the country, uh, that he was, quote, destroying the international order, uh, that he did not subscribe to uh, many of the values and traditions that the United States was fighting for in World War II. You know, this is uh, certainly without precedent, even if you go back to perhaps the, the end of the Nixon presidency. But even there, it strikes me that it was a more limited, uh, you know, sense of the Pentagon acting to, you know, constrain or rein in a president that they feared had gone rogue. Um, you know, so that was amazing, but I think it was important. And I'm glad that we were able to go back to the earlier parts of the presidency and to show that it wasn't just like some kind of a personality fight uh, or disagreement over a specific issue between Milley and, and Trump. But actually, Joe Dunford, a very different character, who was the first chairman of the Joint Chiefs, a Marine general, uh, much more reserved and austere, where Milley is, you know, loquacious and, and filled with bluster. Uh, you know, Dunford, too, had, you know, a, a serious, serious fear, I think, for, about Trump and for the country, a similar set of concerns about Trump's efforts to politicize uh, the military and a similar desire to push back. And that Paul Selva story, which is one of my, you know, I think classic stories in the book, that happened in, in the fall of 2017, very early on in the presidency. So to me, part of the story that we're telling uh, is, is an institutional story that, you know, actually uh, was consistent regardless of the very different personalities of the individuals who clashed with Trump. You know, my judgment is, uh, and I'd be, I really would like to hear Elliot on this because he's the real expert, but I really feel that Mark Esper does not get as much credit, you know, as I think he deserves. Uh, I think Mark, and I'm, you know, partially, I'm sure, affected by the fact that he was a colleague in, you know, in government, but Mark, you know, I think tried very hard uh, right up until the end to prevent Trump from pulling out of Afghanistan precipitously and, you know, in a very dangerous way uh, in the last year of the administration for political reasons. Second, to keep crazy people from being appointed to senior positions, you know, in the Pentagon. And, and third, uh, certainly from the summer of 2020 on, after the affair at Lafayette Square in June of uh, 2020, after the George Lloyd protests, He's trying to keep the military from getting dragged in into anything to do with the election. And, you know, for his pains, he gets derided as Mark Yesper, 
by Trump and, you know, gets summarily fired the day after the election. I mean, Elliot, am I wrong? Is that, I mean, does that... Not- yeah, no, I, I, I think that's right. I guess um, I had three points, actually. Uh, one is, I think that the Milley story is going, this is going to be a case study in war colleges and those kinds of venues of civil military relations under extreme conditions. And I know for a fact, Milley was advised by a whole bunch of people, don't quit. And he actually had those conversations at the beginning of his, of his tenure as chairman and not just in the midst of the crisis. And I think he made the right call. Now there are other areas where to include, you know, should he be divulging if, if it was him who divulged the text of the letter and so on, there'll be, there'll be a lot of questions I think to be asked, but, but it's going to be a really interesting case. And I think on the whole, he behaved very, you know, quite admirably. Um, I, I find Trump's fascination with the military, with parades and stuff like that. I I think that's just a window into his character, that this is a guy who's obsessed with strength because he's actually weak uh, because there's nothing inside. I think it's, you know, it is interesting that despite all the bluster and so on, you know, he he shrinks. He actually ended up shrinking from military options in Syria or in Iran that would have caused collateral damage. It's not that I think he cares about anybody's life other than his own. But I think he, there's actually a certain level of, I wouldn't say timidity, but, you know, when push comes to shove, he's actually more reluctant than you might think. For me, the most dangerous part of that story, though, is what happens after Mark Esper. And I think this goes to your uh, the points that the three of you have made earlier on, that he you know, he gradually figured stuff out. So at the end, it's not just the new Secretary of Defense, Miller, but people like Cash Patel, uh, who he sends in, who are, uh, you know, Shakespeare is this one, there's this wonderful phrase that Henry Bolingbroke uses in Richard II. He talks about the caterpillars of the Commonwealth. Um, <laughs> and, Doug McGregor. Yeah. No, and there are a whole bunch of those caterpillars of the Commonwealth who are either nuts themselves or so completely, you know, craven, you know, it's almost slavish in their devotion who would do anything. And, and that's the really scary part. And thank God he only figured that out at the very end. There's a scene, by the way, in this January 6th commission report that just came out that hasn't gotten a lot of attention. It's really striking to me on this, that he talked on January 6th about having the National Guard accompany him to the Capitol. In other words, literally marching with the military, in effect, to the Capitol himself to try to disrupt the transfer of power, which is, I think, is exactly what Mark Milley and Mark Esper and so many of these guys had feared for so long. And one of the reasons why probably the military was slow to get to the Capitol on January 6th, right? Because there was this fear that that Trump would somehow use it, that this was about Trump militarizing politics. And, and, and obviously they try to learn this lesson from Lafayette Square. And, and you could argue they learned the wrong lesson. We needed to get to the Capitol in order to protect it. But they worried desperately that what Trump wanted to do was militarize his election, his failure to win the election. And in fact, you know, when Trump goes around saying, oh, I'm the one who said that they should have 10,000 National Guards there to protect uh, the Capitol on January 6th, what he actually said, according to several military people, is I wanted 10,000 people there in order to protect my people, my demonstrators from the left-wing agitators that he presumed or accused or whatever of having them there. He was not interested in protecting the Capitol. He wanted to use the military for a very political purpose. And so Mark Milley, I think, was left in this really um, very, very, if not unprecedented, certainly un- nearly unprecedented position of, of having to make a decision about how far you go as a sworn officer 
to, who is loyal to a commander in chief's lawful orders, right? So in our book, we talk about him saying, no, I'm not going to turn in this letter of resignation that Susan talks about. I'm going to stay and fight. Well, that raises all kinds of civil military implications, right? And you're right. This will be taught and should be taught for years to come. What does that mean? You're going to fight the commander in chief? But what I think he means, right, is I'm going to fight any unlawful orders, any disruption of our democratic system, small d, where the military does not take sides in a partisan slugfest. And and that's an unbelievable drama that was playing out right in front of us, even if we didn't quite see it. I would add just one other thing to all this that, you know, what this whole episode teaches us is, I mean, thank goodness there were there are constitutional buffers, there were legal buffers, there were individuals like Milley and, and others who acted as buffers. But at the end of the day, you know, this constitutional system is still vulnerable to having a chief executive who's completely out of control, completely ruthless, uh, completely unprincipled. And, you know, you're you're vulnerable. I, I, I guess that leads me to a, a different kind of question, because I, I think we're coming, uh, unfortunately, to the end of our time. So uh, I don't quite understand why he would want to talk to you since he had to know what your views of him are, but I'm glad he did. Has he changed in any ways? Do you think he is a uh, more sophisticated operator, not in terms of getting the bureaucracy to to do whatever he wants to do, but just nationally? Or uh, should we take some solace in the fact that he's spending a lot of his time devising non-fungible tokens of himself and Superman capes and stuff like that and trying to run yet another grift. You know, the older people get, right, Elliot, sadly, we're all uh, seeing this in our own lives. Uh, The more like themselves they become. Uh, Donald Trump is ever more like himself. Uh, You see the man, uh, you know, in some ways ever more clearly uh, when it's just himself uh, at Mar-a-Lago, uh, you know, uh, swooning for the adoration of a crowd, even a crowd of paying customers on the patio at dinner applauding him. Uh, and, you know, there's a sort of pathos to the guy, uh, you know, the aging con man, uh, uh, you know, the um, uh, Norma Desmond, <laughs> you know, was another image that was invoked in a good piece recently uh, in New York Magazine. And, Donald Trump is who he is. Uh, and, um, you know, he is consumed by grievance, consumed by a need for enemies, uh, you know, for uh, 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 causes and controversies. If they don't exist, he'll create them. Uh, and uh, the essence of the man is is rooted in an ideology of one. Uh, you know, it's, it's a story and a narrative about himself, and thus it ever will be. Uh, and, you know, look, we're, we're not done with him yet. He is not only running for president, but he is uh, in the absence of any other contenders <laughs> for 2024, got to be looked upon as uh, at least the front runner for the Republican nomination. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, uh, the point that you just made is the one that I would leave us with, which is the, the point about uh, what do you do? with a rogue president and that in some ways what we learned in four years of having a rogue president is that the constitution really doesn't have a good answer to that question and if anything the four years of the trump presidency proved that impeachment uh is really not a viable option uh for constraining a president in this situation of extreme polarization and division that currently exists within the country. And so uh, by some measures, 
um, there's less accountability now. Uh, there's less ability to rein in a rogue president than there were uh, before Donald Trump uh, took the office in January of 2017. Well, on that grim note, which is very typical for Shield of the Republic to end that way. <laughs> we're your core demographic, I'm afraid to say. <laughs> um, unfortunately, we could go on for hours with Susan and Peter. Um, I can't believe how quickly the time went by. Um, I do have one just, you know, tiny factual question. Peter, you made reference to the uh, January uh, 6th committee report, which actually struck me in the same way as your book, which is to say there, there was a lot that we already knew, but the amount of stunning detail in it and the construction of the timeline, it, it parallels really what you've done for the whole administration in a lot of ways. Will you be using that to do a revised edition for the paperback version uh, to try and incorporate all that material? Or? Oh, Eric, you just want us to work, work, work. We haven't even, <laughs> we just want to get through the holiday. Yeah, well, we haven't decided yet or talked to our editor about how we would incorporate that. But there'll be a paperback in the fall. And in some ways we'll try to, I think, um, do something to update, obviously. I think a lot of the main points in the January 16th Media Report, fortunately, are in our book. But they do have some wonderful, remarkable, telling, revealing, important, significant details. Uh, and I don't know what the editors will say, the publishers will say about how we could uh, uh, use that. But we'll talk about it for sure. Yeah, I've been reading the transcripts. I don't know about you, but, uh, you know, even more than the report itself, that's uh, <laughs> I'm grateful that they are putting all those transcripts yeah. out. What a record. Yeah, the Cassidy Hutchinson transcripts are really astonishing in a lot of ways. Our guests have been. Oh, I'm sorry, Elliot. Go ahead. So I, I just wanted to ask one last question. This is, this is this is actually not about Trump. This is the author in me. So I've co-authored a couple of books with friends. The friendship survived it. The idea of writing a book with one's spouse just strikes me as filled with nightmarish possibilities. <laughs> how, do you, how do you manage it? Well, you know, Jimmy Carter uh, wrote one book with his wife, Rosalind Carter, and it was so uh, traumatic that they had to have their publisher fly down from New York to mediate for them. He said it was the hardest thing that they ever did in their marriage. <laughs> but for us, actually, you know what? This is where we started. We started together as reporters in the newsroom of the Washington Post. Actually, she was my editor at the time. She doesn't like to admit that. But we, uh, our, our beginning of our relationship has always been professional and personal at the same time. And I think that we've always enjoyed collaborating. It's our third book together. Uh, it's can be tough, obviously, but I think that we are stronger because we do it together. And I think that um, uh, for us, it's a great gift. Well, thank you, Elliot. Uh, as you can see, we're more or less on speaking terms with each other. So <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's worked out OK. But, uh, you know, look, anything as all consuming uh, as a book like this done in a remarkably short amount of time. Thank goodness we were working on it together. That's when I think there would be a real rift in the family if I was, you know, one of us was living uh, in the world of Trump, Trump, Trump all the time and the other wasn't. Uh, so <laughs> so it, it was therapeutic then. We can argue with the results. So, you know, well done. Our guests Thank have been Peter Baker and Susan Glasser. Their book, The Divider, is available um, through uh, Amazon or wherever you buy uh, books. If you got a Hanukkah or Christmas present, if you got an Amazon gift card or a Barnes and Noble gift card or even a Visa gift card, I highly recommend that you use it to buy the divider. Uh, it's, uh, I think, the uh, absolute best book on the Trump administration. 
And Peter and Susan, uh, we hope to have you back in the future. Maybe uh, when the paperback comes out, if you do do an epilogue, we can uh, we can talk about that. But you've been great guests, and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. A lot of fun. Good conversation. Great to be with you both. Thank you. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.